0: The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Ezra chapter 6 is where we're going to be at today. Uh, but before we, uh, we read the text, have you ever had something that you really wanted to happen but just seems like it drags on and on and on before it actually comes about. Probably all of us have had something like that, and, um, and, and the thing that pops into my mind when I think about that is uh, when we first moved to Apple Valley in 2015, of course, one of our first priorities was finding a house, and so uh, when we arrived, our house in Michigan was already in escrow. It had been in escrow for a couple of weeks uh, by the time we got here, and so so we right away got to work, uh, setting up viewings and uh, trying to find a house, and, and so within uh, really just a couple of weeks of getting here, we found the house that we wanted to have, and, and so I called my realtor back in Michigan just to make sure everything was going along smoothly there, and, and he said that it was, and so he said, go for it. And so, so we put in an offer on our house, and, and, uh, and it was accepted, and so we were really excited. And... Uh, and everything here in California seemed to be going along well. A couple things came up, uh, but the bank paid for them, and so that was awesome. And, um, and so we were excited. And, but, but it just wasn't supposed to happen. It just didn't happen the way we thought. We thought, you know, by end of July, uh, we would have this house and everything would be done. But things in Michigan weren't happening quite as fast as we thought they were going to. And so everything was done here. And the bank here was starting to get antsy, right? It was, a, it was a foreclosed house and they wanted their money. And so we had to pay uh, some, some fees to keep our escrow, some, some, uh, some fees to keep it a- extended. And, uh, and then we waited and we waited. And it seemed like forever. And it was only a month, but it seemed like a whole lot longer than a month. And, and I was really worried that we were going to lose, that they were, the bank was just going to quit on us. Put the house in the market again, and we would miss out uh, on this opportunity. And then finally, on Labor Day weekend, over a month, uh, five or so, six weeks longer than we thought it was going to take, we got word that that things were closing up on our house in Michigan, the money was on its way, and we could close on our house here. And so finally, you know, finally everything fell into place, and we had our house. Have you ever been through something like that? You want them, something to happen so badly, and, and, um, but, but you just hit wall after wall, and it drags on and on. And that's kind of how it's been so far in our journey through the book of Ezra. So uh, just uh, by way of review, or, or if, you're, uh, if this is your first time uh, jumping in on this series, uh, we've been working our way through the story of Ezra, and, and we're talking about events that took place uh, during the Persian Empire, and, and specifically... Uh, we are talking uh, about Israel's return from the Babylonian captivity, which, which all began uh, somewhere there uh, around 538 BC. And uh, and remember that that when Cyrus, the king of Persia, originally gave his decree uh, allowing the Jews to go home, they were thrilled. God had worked, and I imagine that when they first heard that they were going to get to go home and build their temple. They were excited, they thought, man, we're going to go home, it's going to be great, everything's going to fall into place, and we are going to be worshiping the Lord in our temple before before any time at all. But of course, we've learned that it didn't happen nearly as fast or as easy as they probably thought. They faced hurdle after hurdle, and delay after delay, and you can imagine that it was very tempting to, to lose hope, especially when construction on this new temple sat idle for for close to 16 years, nothing at all took place. But last week we saw in Ezra chapter 5 that God reinvigorated the work through the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. They said, God wants you to build. And so the people took courage and they got to work. But then we saw that they faced another hurdle when the governor of the region, Tatanai, rolled into town and, and wanted to make sure that this was a legitimate sanctioned project and not that they were building a fortress with the intent of rebelling against uh, the Persians. And so, and so we ended last week with the fact that, that he uh, sent off this letter to the king of Persia at this time, uh, Darius, wanting to find out if he should let the project continue. And of course, the Jews had to wait anxiously. There's no FaceTime, there's no emails, there's no phone calls. They've got to wait for the letter to make its way all the way to Persia and then the response to make it all the way back. And so they're wondering, is God going to open a way or are things going to remain hard? Maybe the king is just going to shut us down entirely. And thankfully, when we come to Ezra chapter 6, I think the battery in this is about dead. Okay, there we go. Uh, When we come to Ezra chapter 6, as Darius... uh, Thankfully, all that anxiety turns to joy when when we come to this chapter, uh, as Darius is going to send a a positive response, and the temple is going to get finished. And worship is going to be restored. And and, and folks, this chapter is a massively significant moment in, in Israel's history. Because God does something incredible. After Israel went away into captivity and it seemed like all hope was lost, God brought His people home. He allowed them to finish their temple and He allowed them to worship Him again. And and so He fulfilled His promises and He demonstrated that He is sovereign and faithful. And in the process, He reminds us as well that, that you can trust the character of God. That He is in control and He always does what He says. And therefore, you can obey him and follow him and know that he will be good. And so the story of Ezra chapter 6 all begins in in verses 1 through 12 where God moves in the heart of the king. So let's go ahead and read uh, Ezra 6 verses 1 through 12. It says, then King Darius issued a decree and search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ecbatana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found and there was written in it as follows, memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundation be retained, its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers, and let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and your colleagues, the officials of the province beyond the river, keep away from there. "'Leave this work on the house of God alone. "'Let the governor of the Jews "'and the elders of the Jews "'rebuild this house of God on its site. "'Moreover, I issue a decree "'concerning what you are to do "'for these elders of Judah "'in the rebuilding of this house of God. "'The full cost to be paid "'to these people from the royal treasury "'out of the taxes of the provinces "'beyond the river, "'and that without delay. "'Whatever is needed, "'both young bulls, rams, and lambs "'for a burnt offering,' to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request it, is to be given them daily without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issue a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempt to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Now, again, we we have to remember that that Ezra 5 left off with the ominous letter that that Tatani, the governor, uh, had sent to King Darius asking if he should allow the Jews to keep building. And as I said last week, all right, you know, when, when, they, when they see the Jews building this temple, uh, it, it, it piques their interest because, because King Darius, he was just two years into his reign and he had spent a lot of time during these first two years putting down a number of revolts. So, so he wants to make sure that they are building a temple and not some sort of military fortress that they're going to use against him. And so, and so Tat and I... Uh, sends off this letter uh, just to make sure that, 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 that this is indeed a sanctioned project of the Persians. And God is moving. Because we learn right away that they find this letter in, in, in a fortress in the city of Ecbatana. So so they begin search, the text says, in Babylon. They don't find it in Babylon. So they go to this fortress in Ecbatana and they find it there. Which as which a side note, is is an interesting proof, a fascinating proof, of the accuracy of the Scriptures. Because we know today, uh, from from archaeological records, that that the Persian kings, they would spend their summers, or excuse me, their winters, down in the city of Babylon, which is low and hot, so they'd spend the winter there, and then the summertime, they'd go up to this fortress in Ecbatana, which was up in the mountains where it was a lot cooler, and specifically, we actually have archaeological records that demonstrate very specifically that, that King Cyrus, in the spring of 538 B.C., went to Ecbatana and spent that summer there when he would have issued that decree. Now, now you might ask, well, why is that significant? Well, it's because if, if liberal scholars are right, and, and you know, some guy is kind of throwing the book of Esther together, making, or Ezra, not Esther... You know, throwing together a bunch of, of stuff to make a story, you know, 100, 200 years after the events, way over in the city of Jerusalem, there's no way he's going to get a detail like this right. But, but he does get these details right, which demonstrates that the scriptures, are, or just reminds us again, that this is accurate history. So, so what we see here is that the officials search, and they find this decree that Cyrus had issued some 20 years earlier, and that decree that Cyrus had written is recorded for us in verses 3 through 5. And it proves that Cyrus had indeed given the Jews permission to rebuild their temple. And he didn't just tell me he could rebuild it, though, right? He also said, we're going to pay for the project. Which, that's a big deal, right? <laughs> that the Persians are going to fund this thing, and as well, it says, that, that he had returned the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken when he destroyed the original temple. So, folks, this is a big find. Because, yes, the Jews knew that this decree existed. But, but you know, stuff like this has a tendency to just conveniently disappear. You know, in, in, the, in the government's hands or in other people's hands when they don't want it to exist. But, but Darius finds this decree, and, and he is committed to honoring it. And so, in verses 6 through 12, he responds by issuing his own decree, and God continues to work because Darius provides for the work of the temple. And specifically, he grants three things to the Jews. First of all, he grants them permission to keep building. Now, now remember, again, that that Tatanai had asked if he should shut down the project. You know, is this something that's legitimate? Is this something that you uh, allow? And Darius answers with a resounding no. I mean, look at what he says in verse 6. He tells Tatanai, keep away from there. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Now, folks, that's exactly what the Jews wanted to hear. Because remember in Ezra chapter 4 that that the Samaritans had, had already come along and they wanted to join in the project. They wanted to get involved and, and put their own imprint on the building of the temple. But, but the Jews had rejected their offer because they knew that God wanted a holy people to build this temple exactly according to the way God wanted it built. And, and it had cost them, right? Because the Samaritans got mad that, that they rejected their offer and, and made life difficult. So so verses 6 and 7 are exactly what the Jews want to hear. They don't want anyone else sticking their fingers in this project. They don't want anyone else to get involved. They just want everyone else to leave them alone and let them work. So Darius grants permission to continue with the project. And then secondly, he grants provision. Now this is a big deal. Because again, you have to imagine that at this point, the Jews are probably struggling to, to, to finance this massive project. You know, again, there's only about 42,000 people that had come back from Babylon, and they're trying to build this massive and, and very significant temple. Now, the decree of Cyrus had said that the Persians were going to pay for it. But, but considering everything the Jews had been through, how tempting would it be to actually go ask the king for help? Like, you've got this question, like, well, if we ask the king for help, then he's going to want to get involved. He might shut us down entirely. You know, or, or he might want to, you know, to, to make it this way or change up how we want to do this over here. And, and so the, the text gives no indication that they had actually uh, reached out and, and tried to, to receive the aid from the government that they were supposed to receive. So, so, so they were just trying to struggle through this project all by themselves. And as a result... I mean, they had to be absolutely elated to hear the king command Tatanai to fund this entire project from the royal taxes. And sort of as a side note, it's kind of ironic and and funny to think, I mean, think about the Samaritans when they hear this. Like, our tax dollars are going to fund that Jewish temple over there in Jerusalem. They had to be so frustrated by that. But, But God was at work. And notice as well uh, that Darius didn't just pay for the construction. He wants to provide everything they need for the sacrifices. And in fact, uh, verse 9, uh, scholars have pointed out, it, it gives some some really specific details that were were pretty specific to Jewish worship, which which means, you know, I mean, you, can, you can imagine, you know, some king, he's got all sorts of stuff to take care of, and he just wants to get this off his desk and that off his desk, so, you know, yeah, give him a few cows and you know give him a few sheep and you know get him off my you know get him out of my house but but it seems here that you know Darius doesn't just give him a little bit of help it seems like he probably had Jewish counselors that came around him and helped him know exactly what the Jews needed in order to do this right and so imagine again how amazing it must have been for the Jews to hear this like the Persian king is giving us exactly what we need. God is working for us. And then the third thing that, that Cyrus promises to provide is protection. Now probably when you read through, when we read through this text a moment ago, I mean verse, verse 11 catches our attention. You know, verse 11 is a great verse for junior high ministry, all right so so this is a you know this is this is something else that that, that just is totally outside of, of how of our normal lives in, in our in the modern day world, uh, but 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 here in verse eleven, you know Darius says that if anyone interferes with this project, Tatnai is supposed to destroy that person's house, and when he destroys their house, he is supposed to take a large beam out of that house, and and this is and according to Persian custom he was supposed to sharpen the edge of this beam, you know, basically turning it into a massive skewer. And then what, what the uh, Persians would do after they made this large skewer is they would take the body of whoever they were wanting to execute and they would shove the body like right through this large skewer of a beam. Now, now sometimes they would mercifully kill that person before They stuck the large beam through their body. But sometimes they didn't. And sometimes the guy didn't die right away. And then after they had done so, they would leave the body hanging uh, on the beam, potentially for for, for several days, uh, allowing it to decay out in the open where everyone could see it, allowing the birds and other animals to to slowly eat it. And and it was an intense, right? Uh, A very intense... And very humiliating statement about what happens to anyone who disobeys the Persians. Like, you mess with us, that's going to be you. And if, you know, you look at that and you think, yeah, I don't want to end up like that. And so, but what's particularly significant about all of it, and I should mention too, that's, that's exactly what happens to Haman in the story of Esther. Like the gallows in Esther are not, you know, hanging someone by the neck, you know, on a rope. Or, or even crucifying them. No, no, the gallows is this skewer that they would push a body through. And so that's what happened to Haman. But what's, but what's particularly significant about all this is that Darius is attaching, uh, is, is saying that an attack against the Jews is an attack against me. And he can't be much stronger. If you mess with the Jews... If you resist what they are doing, you are resisting the order of the king of the most powerful nation in the world. So if the Samaritans or anyone else in the region was was tempted to interfere with this project, make life difficult, Darius says, don't mess with the Jews, because if you mess with them, you're going to mess with me, and you're going to end up on a stick. And folks, again, it's just an incredible moment. And finally notice what he says in verse 12. He says, May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it. So as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem, I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. You know, again, it's just incredible. You know, and imagine the Jews hearing this decree read from King Darius for the very first time. I mean, what a moment. For, for Zerubbabel, for Jeshua, the high priest, the people, they hear it. You, know, you can imagine, some of them are crying. Some of them are shouting for joy. And other people are just standing there speechless. Like, I can't believe that Darius... And you know, these, these king's guys, I mean, they're not good people, right? They are evil, power-hungry, arrogant men. And yet, here is this King Darius saying, I am standing with the Jews, and I am going to protect this project. And you know, above everything else, all of it is a testimony to the sovereignty of our God. And it once again proves the truth that we've mentioned before of Proverbs 21, verse 1, that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. You know, So as powerful and as intimidating as Darius surely was, he could not resist the sovereign power of God even at the level of his own heart. You know, like, like, wouldn't you think? We, we like to think that if there is anything that I have control over, I have control over my heart. But God says, with a simple flick, I rule the hearts of all, of all men. And you know, the same is true today. And for the last three weeks, we have watched and, and grieved as, as you know, Vladimir Putin has, has sought to, to show the world how glorious and powerful and strong he is. But God says he's not even in charge of his own heart. God is sovereign down to the most intimate part of who we are. And with a simple flick, he can turn the heart of man wherever he wants. And he can do the same with any man. No matter how powerful or no matter how evil they may be. And Psalm 2 verse 4 says, when, when human powers shake their fist in God's face and, and declare their sovereignty, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. But God is infinitely more powerful than any human strength. And furthermore, so, so this decree, it declares the sovereignty of God, but as well it declares the faithfulness of God. You know, and again, imagine this decree being read. You think about, you know, Tatanai or whoever comes into town, he's stand there reading this decree, all the Jews are standing around him listening. And I have to imagine that a lot of people, as this decree is being read, they look over at Haggai and Zechariah, who are surely standing there. And, and, and they had spoken to the people, and they had, had given some incredible promises of God. They had prophesied on God's behalf, and they had told the people that if you step out in faith and you begin to build, God will take care of you, God will bless you, and you will finish this temple. And I bet a lot of people looked at Haggai and Zechariah and thought, man, you're crazy. And there's no way we're going to get this done. There's no way the Persians will let us. There's no way this is possibly going to work out. But God kept his promise. God did exactly what he said he would do. Against all human odds, he, he worked on the behalf of his people. And, and, folks, it should encourage us that God will be faithful to us as well. You know, the Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and, and so he never changes. And when God makes a promise, he always fulfills it. And so we should give thanks today that, that we are not subject to chance and chaos, that our lives are in the hands of a sovereign and faithful God. So, so in sum, God did something incredible in moving Darius to write this decree. But, but of course, God is not done. The, the temple still needs to be finished. So verses 13 through 18 add that God enabled Israel to build. And so let's read on. Beginning in verse 13, it says, Then Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu and they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of the temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 12 male goats, corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their order for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So again, verse 12, Darius had said to carry out this decree with all diligence, and verse 13 says that Tatanai did just that. He, he carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent. So again, just imagine him marching back into town. You know, I mean, several months ago, uh, Tatanai had come into town. And he had come into town to inspect them and to make sure they were, they were not uh, defying the orders or, or the, the sovereignty of the king. But But this time, he doesn't march into town with soldiers. He marches into town with wagons. And these wagons are full of money, supplies, and with big promises. And he assures the Jews that that he is going to supply them whatever they need. And otherwise, we're just going to stay out of the way. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Like, here's the cash, and I'm out of here. And, And so the Jews, they rejoice, and then they get to work. Now, now I have to emphasize that there was still a lot of work to do, right? So so chapter 4, verse 24 said that they resumed building in the second year of Darius, so so 520 B.C. They didn't finish, according to verse verse 15 of this chapter, until the sixth year of King Darius. So it wasn't until 516 or four years later that they finished. And this was a big project. And even with the king's help, I'm sure there were some frustrating days. Some days where things didn't go as planned and the workers weren't doing the things they needed to do. People got discouraged. So it's interesting that verse 14 highlights the fact that Haggai and Zechariah, God's prophets, continued to stand alongside the people, encourage them, you know, get, bring to them messages from the Lord to, to strengthen their faith. And then finally... Verse 14 says, they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, now I do need to, to just mention that it is a bit curious that they include, uh, that the text includes uh, King Artaxerxes uh, in, this, in, in this statement. Because Artaxerxes, as you can see on the screen, he doesn't come along uh, until 464 BC. So, so he's, he, he's not even... He's not on anyone's radar at this point in the story. And probably the reason he is included here is because Artaxerxes is the one who will sanction the second and the third returns and the works of Ezra and Nehemiah. So so what the author is doing here is he is stepping back after all of this is done, and he is looking at everything that God had accomplished and how God had worked through, through the command of God and through the decree of these three kings to see the city, the temple, and the walls of Jerusalem all rebuilt. God did incredible things. But, but notice in particular that verse 14 does not give ultimate credit for this project to, to these three kings. Now it says it was according to the command of the God of Israel that, that all of this took place. So, so even the most powerful men on earth, they are not sovereign. God commanded these three kings to do the things that they had done. God is sovereign over everything, and therefore, by God's decree, Israel finished the temple, and from there, they dedicated the temple to the Lord, and they began to worship. Now, so, so verse seventeen. It uh, mentions the fact that once the temple is finished, they, they dedicate it to the Lord. And, and they offer uh, all these sacrifices that are mentioned here. And, and it sounds like quite a bit to us, right? So 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. That's a lot of meat. And, and these are not uh, burnt offerings that would have been uh, totally offered up to the Lord. that They would have been fellowship offerings. So, so they had a, a massive barbecue, all right? So, so, so that's a lot of meat, well, though it's important to mention that it is only a fraction of what Solomon had, had used when he dedicated the first temple. So 1 Kings tells us that when, when Solomon dedicated the first temple, he offered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So that's a big difference. But it's okay, right? I mean, God is at work. And he is pr- providing for and blessing this small group of people who has returned and worked faithfully. I think one other difference from, from Solomon's dedication is that this time they offer a sin offering for each of the 12 tribes. Now that is sort of interesting because you know, of the people that are there at the dedication of this second temple, almost all of them are from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Basically, the other nine tribes are are not even represented. But but the people of Judah, Benjamin and Levi here, they have a vision for the entire nation. And in particular as well, they recognize that that Israel, their nation, had sinned against the Lord. They had disobeyed God's commands for generations. And so God had sent them into captivity as a rightful judgment for their sin. And so they offer these sacrifices, this sin offering, to say, God, we have sinned against you, and we need your forgiveness. It's another amazing day. And think about the fact that that it had been 70 years now, almost exactly 70 years, from, from 586 to 516, since they had been able to worship God in a temple. But God here was gracious and faithful, despite Israel's sin. He brought them home and he restored their ability to rightly worship him in his temple. But but God's not done. And so finally, in verses 19 through 22, God inspired them to worship. And so the text ends, the story ends in verse 19 by saying, The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. And they observed the feast of unleavened bread, seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God The God of Israel. Now now the text tells us here that they dedicated the temple uh, during, uh, it says there, the month of Adar. So so, so that would be roughly March in in our calendar. And so this verse tells us, uh, verse 19 tells us, that on the 14th day of the first month, which would be April, so about a month later, they observed the Passover. Now, Now again. They had been observing the Passover now for for 20 years. Ever since, they they built a a new altar on on the temple site when they first came back to Jerusalem. But this was the first time, again, in 70 years, that they had been able to to worship and and observe the Passover from a rightful temple. So this is a big deal. And, um, And so verses 20 and 21 emphasize that they were very careful to do this right. You know, it's not just like, hey, we're happy, let's have a good time, whatever happens, happens. No, it says the priests and the Levites, they purified themselves together. And they only welcomed those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations. Now, now that might sound like, like really minor details. But, but we have to remember that for generations, everything that Israel did to worship the Lord was polluted. By, by paganism. Now, I just finished reading through First and Second Kings in my devotions, and, and even with, with almost all the best kings, there's always critiques about how they, they didn't destroy the high places. Or different kings brought pagan ideas and, and, and illustrations into the, into the temple of the Lord. So, so, I mean, basically from the time of David, everything was, was impure. Everything was polluted in some sense, by, by, by paganism and idolatry. And, and you know, the captivity was a terrible thing. It was destructive, it was violent, it was horrible. But, but you know, as a result of the captivity, God purged Israel of idolatry. And, and never again do you see Israel struggling with idolatry like they always struggled with idolatry prior to the Babylonian captivity. These returnees, they are passionate about holiness. And so they observe the Passover, and then verse 22 goes on to say that they also observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they they observe the Passover, they slaughter the Passover lamb, and then verse 22 says they observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, Now, the Passover always took place on the 14th day of the first month in the Jewish calendar. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed in days 15 through 21. So so basically, they they observed these two things uh, together as basically one large celebration uh, that that God had instituted uh, to to cause them to remember and celebrate uh, their deliverance from Egypt. The Passover and the unleavened bread they they ate as they were leaving town. And verse 22 emphasizes that they celebrated with joy now, why did they celebrate with joy? Well, well verse 22 goes on to explain. And, and, you know, when you read through narratives, verses like 22 should jump out to you. Because the author backs up from just telling the story and he tells us what he wants us to learn and what he wants us to see in the story. So, what's he tell us as he closes out this story? He says that they. They observed the feast for seven days, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So God moved. Now now I do, just one little um, question that you might have is, well, why does he call him the king of Assyria instead of the king of Persia? Because because Darius is Persian, not Assyrian. And just to answer that, um, you know, the, the major world empires throughout world history, uh, Assyria was the first empire to rule this, this kind of large region uh, there in, in the middle of Asia. And so it actually was, was fairly common practice to refer to, to the Babylonian and the Persian empires as well as the Assyrian Empire. In fact, uh, we have record of the great Greek historian Herodotus who lived, uh, shortly after this time, calling the Persian Empire the Assyrian Empire. So this is not just some, you know, you know brain stupidity, you know, act of forgetfulness on the part of the narrator. This was common practice. So, so with that in mind, notice what the narrator really wants to drive home as he closes out the story of the first return from captivity. So yes, Cyrus made the original decree to allow the Jews to go home. And yes, Darius had had allowed them to finish the project. But ultimately, who receives the glory and who receives the credit? They rejoiced in the Lord because the Lord was the one who turned the heart of the king. God is the one who was in control. And so the Lord is sovereign, not any human power, And therefore, the Jews do not ultimately rejoice in the king. They rejoice in the Lord as they observe this feast. Because God is the one who had done something marvelous. So so what do we learn from all this? Well, four conclusions as we wrap up. First of all, we need to take from this story that God is sovereign. Now, Now, we've talked a lot about this. We talk about it a lot all the time. You know, and, and, and yet it's important that we bring up these, these, these fundamental truths of Scripture often because we all like to believe that we're in charge, right? Like, like I like to think that I'm in control of my life and you like to think that you're in control of your life. And really powerful people, they really like to believe that they're in control. And they remind us often that they are in control. But we need to remember often that God alone is sovereign. Now, you know this if you've been in church at all, but it is essential that we remind ourselves often because so many voices are constantly telling you the opposite. Your fears, your anxieties, you know, your schedule, the demands that are placed on you, all these things are always telling you that that, that, that you are subject to all sorts of powers and influences. But folks, we do not need to fear human powers. And we do not need to bow to human masters because God is the ruler. And he is the one who turns the hearts of men wherever he wishes. God is in control. There is not anything in this universe that resists his power and his authority. God is sovereign. Secondly, God is faithful. You know, theologians like to say that God is immutable. And and, and that simply means that God never changes. His character and His power are constant. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't have good days and bad days? You know, days where He's really apathetic and, ah, and other days where He's fired up and emotional about everything. God is always righteous, just, and good. And God always keeps His promises. God is never flaky. He's never forgetful. He's never finicky. He always remembers. And He always acts. And, and folks, there are, there, are, there are very few things in life that you could really count on. But you can bank everything on the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. And then third, because of that, we must trust God's character. And of course, that begins... With, with entrusting your soul and, and your eternity to Him. And I probably uh, really have not emphasized it as much as I should, that, that Ezra 1-6 through 6 is a, t- a powerful testimony to the fact that God always keeps His redemptive promises. After all, this, is, this story is about a whole lot more than, than 42,000 people and a building project. I mean, this is about the people of God... Restoring temple worship to the Lord. It's about God's broader plan of bringing redemption to the world. And think about the fact that these 42,000 people, they they built this this temple. And and yes, all right, there were a lot of, of modifications, renovations, expansions that are ultimately done on this temple. But the temple that these people built is the temple that Jesus visited when he walked the earth. I mean, he taught in in the shadow of this building. And then Jesus died outside Jerusalem to provide salvation for all who believe on him. And just as certainly, he will return one day to Jerusalem, to this place. And he will finish his work of redemption and reconciliation for the entire world. So you can trust your eternity to the gospel of Christ. And if you have never been saved, then then, then trusting God's character begins with confessing the fact that you have broken God's law, you have sinned against Him, and entrusting your soul to the salvation that Jesus provides. And you can do that knowing that God is faithful and He will keep His promises of salvation. So if you've never been saved, trust in Him today to be saved. And if you are saved, trust God's character every single day. Now, every one of us has burdens. We have fears. We have frustrations. We have disappointments. Something is weighing on you today. But remember that God is bigger than whatever it is. And God is faithful. And and He will not abandon you. And, And He is good. So his purposes are just. So trust God's character. And then finally, give thanks for God's blessings. Now so often our problem is not that God never answers our prayers and God never does anything that's good. Our problem is that we never make it to verses 19 through 22. We never recognize the blessings of God and rejoice. You know, one of the reasons why God built so many feasts and festivals into Israel's calendar is that he wanted them to constantly have have disciplines to remember the works of God and to give thanks for the works of God and to worship him for what all those things said about his character. And we need those disciplines, too. So the question for you today is not, has God been faithful to me or has God been good? Because God has been. The question is, do I recognize God's sovereign hand at work in my life, and do I give thanks for His good works? So so let's all learn from the example of Israel, and let's see the hand of God all around us, and let's worship Him for His abundant blessings. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this story, and Father, in particular, We praise You for the God who stands behind it. We praise You that You are sovereign, You are faithful, and You are good. And so, Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would help us to trust You. Help us, Lord, to to believe Your promises, to, to, to leave our burdens with You, and help us to walk by faith, even when it is scary, Even when it is uncertain, knowing that you are always faithful and you are always good. And so, Lord, I pray for for every person in this room. Lord, I pray for any who are here that do not know Jesus as Savior. Father, I pray that they would cast their souls, cast their, their hearts on Christ, on his work of redemption and be saved. I pray for all of us that know you as Savior, that Lord, we would trust you every day, walk in obedience, and worship you for your blessings. And so, uh, increase our faith, increase our joy and thanksgiving, in Jesus' name.